0: invite you to open your Bible to 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, chapter 18. This is the time in our worship service when we open God's Word because we believe it is the inspired and infallible, inerrant Word of God. It is so easy to become a product of our culture and of our social media and our school systems and the cultural systems around us. That we begin to think and act like the world and forget what God has said, and that is why every week we spend so much time in our church body through classes, through Celebrate Recovery, through the Scriptures being preached on Sunday mornings, through our community groups, our D groups, trying to get us back into the Scriptures, into the text to see what God has said. This morning we are uh, finishing up a four-part series on angels and demons. If you have been with us out into the tent. And in today's message, we're going to focus on Satan and his ongoing rebellion against God. And here's what we hope to learn this morning. We hope to learn and be reminded how Satan's rebellion ultimately serves God's purposes. That's where we're heading this morning. To borrow a phrase from Martin Luther, the German theologian and monk from 500 years ago, his famous phrase, the devil is God's devil, meaning he's under God's jurisdiction. And what Luther seemed to be getting at was that while most, while most true Christians, I know a lot of us here are Christians, not everyone is, but I know a lot of us are, while most true Christians would say that God is more powerful than the devil and will ultimately triumph, when you listen to a lot of Christians and I include myself in them, When you listen to a lot of us pray and or talk, it almost sounds as if God and Satan are locked in some kind of a dead heat and it's going to be a close finish. You hear that? It's not uncommon to hear us pray that way, talk that way, think that way, and this is where the Bible has great news. All of us need to step back and look and be reminded that the devil exists under God's jurisdiction and that the events on our planet hear this, are unfolding, the events on our planet and in our universe are unfolding exactly on God's divine timetable. In other words, Satan's mutiny, his insurrection are strategically, not incidentally, they are strategically fulfilling God's divine plan down to the smallest of details. And here is why it's so important for God's people to understand this. I need to understand this. All of us who call ourselves genuine believers need to understand this. Let me give you a couple reasons. So that we remember that Satan and his angels serve a greater purpose than their own. Second reason, so that we never forget that God sovereignly directs history and knows exactly what He's doing and where He's going, and He has a foreordained plan And He is taking us there. Thirdly, so that we don't despair, lose hope, and get bitter as we wrestle against dark demonic forces around us all the time. And lastly, so that we remember something very important, that Satan and his angels will one day be judged by God and cast into the lake of fire forever and punished. With that, I want to look at four examples from the Bible this morning, that I think will be great encouragement about how Satan serves God's purposes. If you know Jesus is Lord, this is powerful tonic, this is powerful encouragement, gospel promises about how God ultimately is leading everything right on schedule. These are in no particular order, and I'm not meaning to say that Satan always behaves this way, but there are clear examples in Scripture where God Strategically is using the devil. And these examples are given for us to be aware of and to understand and to navigate our lives. Number one, God clearly uses Satan at times to discipline the disobedient. It's a very clear principle in Scripture. First Samuel chapter 18. God clearly uses Satan at times to discipline the disobedient. Now here's background. A lot of us here know our Bibles, but some of us here, this is pretty new territory. So let me just back up real quick. We have a guy named David. He's the young and upcoming king in Israel, and he has just killed a Goliath of a man. named Goliath. We use the word Goliath for a big person, but Goliath. Uh, how big Goliath was is a little bit of uh, a mystery. Uh, the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint. Both put his height at about six foot nine. The Masoretic text puts his height at about nine feet nine. The Dead Sea Scrolls are the oldest witness, so is the Septuagint. Either way, in ancient Israel, this would have been a huge dude. This was a Hulk Hogan of his day. And he was a warrior, so he was buff. This is a big guy, terrifying guy. And David was a hero, and as with today... People loved their heroes back then. Today we have, you know, Americans look back at George Washington or U.S. Grant. Jews back then had Joshua and they had King David and everyone loves their heroes. The only problem is hero worship had made David an enemy of the current king, King Saul. I'm going to pick up the text, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 6 to 9. The people's hero worship of David had made King Saul very jealous, and this is where the discipline will come in. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with timbrels and lyres. And as they danced, they sang. and Here's a little diddly that they sang. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. You can already see this isn't going to go well for David. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. I'm sure that's putting it mildly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on on David. So Saul's response here was very typical of a very consistent pattern of disobedience in his life. This is a chronic problem in Saul's life and it was displayed throughout most of his life. Worst of all, he was completely blind to his sin and it seems those closest to him seem blind to his sin or to enable him, but God wasn't blind and God chose to send an evil spirit. As part of his discipline on Saul's disobedience. By the way, we see the same thing in chapter 16 and chapter 19. But verse 10 gives us the picture. The next day, an evil spirit, you can translate the Hebrew there, a harmful or wicked spirit, from God came forcefully on Saul. Now notice a couple things. This was an evil spirit. This was not an angel. This was some kind of a demon. And came from God. God sent this creature and it came forcefully on Saul. You have three very clear things there. And as a result, what you see in Saul's life, if you continue to go on in 1 Samuel, Saul became increasingly paranoid, increasingly angry, increasingly dark, increasingly defiant, and increasingly miserable as he was taken over, dominated and harassed by this demonic spirit. Today, again, we talked about in the first week of this series that we, we think in therapeutic categories today. We automatically default to if somebody's displaying this kind of behavior, oh, there's mental illness or there's some kind… could be, but we completely discount the demonic, the spiritual aspects here. And so, the Bible is clear, clear here and in chapter 16, 19. God sometimes uses evil spirits, sometimes uses Satan and his demons to discipline those and disobedience. Let me give you another example in First Timothy. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, Paul tells a young pastor, Timothy, to turn two disobedient men over to Satan to be taught not to blasphemy. That's another clear example of God using Satan and his demons to discipline disobedience. Once again, what this means is as you look at the text, go high level here for a second. God has absolutely absolute jurisdiction, absolute authority over Satan and his demons. Something reinforced in the New Testament in Mark's gospel, by the way, we get an amazing statement. I want to turn there for just a minute, Mark chapter 1. An amazing statement about the authority of Jesus over evil spirits. Mark chapter 1 verses 23 through 28. Here you have this explicit statement of the authority of Jesus over the demonic realm. Mark chapter 1, it's the second gospel inside our New Testament, verses 23 to 28. This is taking place in Capernaum. Capernaum was a small village on the Sea of Galilee and it is the Sabbath, verse 23, just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an unclean or an impure spirit cried out, so this spirit knew exactly who Jesus was, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Why have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. There's the confrontation. Please notice, young people, please notice Jesus' command over the demonic realm. Verse 25, "'Be quiet,' Jesus said sternly. "'Come out of him.'" And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Now notice verse 27, 28, "'The people were all so amazed they asked each other, "'What is this, a new teaching and with authority?' And then notice their commentary. He gives orders to wicked spirits, and they obey him. What a statement! An incredible statement. He gives orders to wicked spirits, and they obey him. So Jesus speaks with authority. The devil and his demons do exactly what they're told. That's what the text says, pure and simple. God sometimes uses Satan and his demons to discipline the disobedient, and we have several examples in Scripture, and we have no reason to think that that does not occur today. Secondly, second example in the Bible, God uses Satan at times to refine the obedient, His people. And for here, we're going to turn to the book of Job. Some of you know the book of Job well. I want to point out just a couple things in the text here, and then we'll move to our third example. But here's an example of how God uses Satan to refine one of his own. Job was a righteous man. We don't know if Job might have been the very first book of the Bible written. If you're using a chronological Bible, sometimes chronological Bible puts Job as the very first book to be read, sometimes puts it further in. There's likelihood that this was the first book of the Bible written. There's a number of signs of the antiquity of Job based on linguistics and other things. Job was a righteous man that God tested and refined, and he used Satan as part of that refining. I'm going to start at verse 1, down through verse 3, and then we'll pick it up again in verse 6. In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was, now notice what he was described as, blameless and upright. And then also notice, he feared God, shunned evil. So you've got four things, blameless, upright, feared God, shunned evil. That is the definition of a righteous man. He had seven sons, three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 head of yoke and oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the uh, East. This was clearly a distinguished man that God had blessed. One day, verse 6, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan, who also came with them. So this is Satan and a group of his demons. The Lord said to Satan, "'Where have you come from?' Satan answered the Lord, "'From roaming throughout the earth, back and forth among it. Then the Lord said to Satan, "'Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil.'" So there you have all four things mentioned again. Now Satan talks. "'Does Job fear God for nothing?' Satan replied. "'Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has?' And have you not blessed the work of his hands? Satan is accusing, that's his name here, thus Satan, he's accusing God of pampering Job and then protecting him. You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds spread throughout the land. Stretch out your hand, strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Very well, everything he has is in your power. And then, Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, young people, notice the last phrase, but on the man himself, what's he say? Do not lay a finger. In other words, you can't take his life, depending on how you translate the Hebrew there, but don't kill him. You may not kill him. You may not do anything ultimately to harm him, and he says that even more so down in chapter 2, verse 6, go down to verse 2, 6. The Lord said, Yahweh said to the Satan, very well, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So at first, you can't touch him. Then the jurisdiction backed up a bit, and it became, well, okay, you can do some even that, but you can't take his life. So very clearly, God is defining the borders here and the hedges about how far Satan may, uh, may act. The rest of chapter 1 You have to stand amazed at the sheer power of Satan here because it's very clear he causes lightning and causes Job's sheep and servants to die. It's very clear. He causes evil raiders to come in and kill more servants and steal livestock. He causes a wind to destroy a home where Job's Job's children are feasting and kills all of them. Anybody who thinks Satan is not powerful is kidding themselves. He's incredibly powerful. The key is, powerful under whose authority and under whose jurisdiction. In the midst of all this great pain, Job cries out, chapter 1, verse 21, one of the most amazing submissions to the authority of God. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, and what's he say? May the name of the Lord be praised. If you're looking for a prayer, when you're going great trial, if you're looking for something in in, in a way to respond to God in a a, a manner that is pleasing to Him, there's your phrase, that no matter what is going on around you, what's kind of demonic or satanic influence or attack, no matter what the evil one is conjuring up in your life, but in terms of strife, turmoil, and attack, You have here this phrase, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, may His name be praised. And then Satan further tests and refined Job as you go up through chapter 2. He gets painful sores, so it's very clear. The the power of Satan continues to be displayed. He can inflict great physical suffering. But Job 40, before I do that, here's the question. Who brought Job's trials on him? It's very clear on one level. Satan did. The the text couldn't be clear here. What's the text say? It's very clear. Satan has enormous power here. But the question goes beyond that. Who really is in charge of Job's trials? And while Satan was on one level, when you get to the end of Job, chapter 42, verse 11, here's what it says. All the troubles that the Lord brought on him. So while Satan has a certain amount of jurisdiction and has enormous power and inflicted great suffering including killing his children, inflicting him with great bodily harm, wiping out his holdings and possessions. He was not able to touch him in a way that would destroy him. God had to sign the authorization papers and ultimately God takes credit at the end of the book. It is all the troubles the Lord brought on him. He is the one who's ultimately responsible. Ladies and gentlemen, never forget this. Young people, never forget this. God always has to sign the authorization papers for Satan's schemes. Don't ever forget that. God always has to sign the authorization papers for Satan's schemes. He always has to be the one that signs them. Let me use 9-11 as an example. Right after 9-11, we were pastoring a church in Michigan. Like most of you who were alive that day can remember with crisp clarity what a beautiful Tuesday it was and what happened that morning, right around 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, what unfolded. Within the next week or so, one of the most respected pastors in our community, he was a great guy, preaches the gospel, he had a large church, he was a good dude. I knew him. He got up in his pulpit, and he was trying to put 9-11 in context for his people. I was not there, but I was given the cassette tape, and I've listened to it a couple of times, and just to be fair. And at one point, this is what he said. And I, 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 I think I know where he was trying to go, and I think I know what he was trying to do. He was trying to encourage his people, but he, this is what he said. He looked out, in very stern voice, he said to his people, He said, listen, don't ever forget. God had nothing to do with this tragedy. And I backed it up. He didn't just say that, did he? And he said it with great force. He said, friends, listen, don't ever forget. And he attributed He said, this was of the devil. And he said, God had nothing to do with 9-11. Now, why would a true Christian... Or, why should a true Christian cringe at that statement? Because God had everything to do with 9 11. If He didn't, then He's not God. Period. That doesn't mean He's the one that instigated flying the airplanes into the buildings and all, but God signed the authorization papers. I was interviewed the morning of 9 11. Put on the radio. We had a guy in our church who owned a radio station that had quite a large coverage in our area. He called me up. I'd like to interview you. It was only within two hours after the whole thing unfolded. He put me live and he said, So people are asking, where's God in 9 11 Here. I didn't have a script in front of me or anything, and I, I don't remember my exact words, but there was something along the line of, well, I guess he's in the same place he was on 9 10. He's on the throne. Let us never forget, God was not caught by surprise today. He is the one orchestrating world events. He gave life and breath to these 19 men who were murdering thugs. He knew exactly what was going on. He was directing the whole thing. Satan carried it out, Satan's accountable, those men are accountable and every evil agent involved is accountable. But they didn't do it somehow separate from God's authority or jurisdiction. God signed the authorization papers, like it or hate it. God had everything to do with 9-11. He has everything to do with any other tragedy. God never, ever, ever tries to get Himself off the hook when it comes to worldwide tragedies. He takes full credit for Noah's flood or any other major tragedy you see in the Bible. Because he wants you to know he is the one running the show. He is the one who signs authorization papers for anything that happens on our planet. Thirdly, this one will surprise some, but it's very encouraging. I was working on it this week. God uses Satan to advance the gospel. A number of examples of this, but I want to turn to one of the most obvious, Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 God sometimes uses Satan to advance the gospel. Classic example of this is when Satan possessed Judas, leading him directly to betray Jesus to the Roman authorities, leading to the crucifixion. Luke 22, 1 to f- uh, not 1 to 5. Yeah, I'm gonna start with 1 to 5, and then we're gonna move down further. Luke 22, 1 to 5. Now the festival of unleavened bread called Passover was approaching. The chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for someone, some way to get rid of Jesus. But they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas. This was full-on possession, demon possession of Judas. Which means Judas somehow, in some way, opened his life to the devil. Called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. So notice, there's, I believe, direct causation here. Satan entered Judas, full-on possession, and immediately the next thing that happens is Judas is looking for a way to betray Jesus. They were delighted, the Roman authorities, and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. So, let's state the obvious. Satan had a plan. His plan was to lead Judas to betray Jesus and to kill Jesus. But God had a higher plan and that was to advance the gospel. Why? Well, again, let's state the obvious. Satan had no idea that he was precisely cooperating with God's foreordained purposes for the cross or he would have never done this. Here's what what the devil utterly missed. Don't, Don't miss this. Here's what he missed. He missed that the death of Jesus, the whole event surrounding his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, all of that, what Satan missed was the cross was God's predetermined plan. Jesus tells us this in John 13 in the upper room when he says that what Judas did fulfilled prophecy. And then he quotes from the Psalms. But Jesus isn't the only one to confirm this. In the book of Acts, we also see confirmation that this was part of God's predetermined plan. Look at Acts chapter 2 for a minute. We're going to look at Acts 2 and Acts 4. If you have any lingering doubt, Acts 2 and 4. Acts 2 verses 22 to 24 the book of Acts confirms that Jesus' death and all willing parties were part of God's predestined plan, who works out everything, Ephesians says, in accordance with His will. Not some things, He works out everything in accordance with His will. Acts 2, verses 22 to 24. Let's just look at what, what does the text say. Fellow Israelites, this is Peter preaching. Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through Him, as you yourselves know. Now, notice verse 23. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's default plan. Is that what it says? Hope you have a Bible in front of you deliberate plan. That means predestined, that means foreordained, that means plan A. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him, on, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So, God, notice God uses wicked agents, people, to do his deliberate plan, and who is behind all of this? Satan. One of the players he used was Judas. If you go to chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, you have an even more remarkable example of God's sovereignty and human accountability. We often agonize over things like predestination, human accountability. The Bible shows no tension whatsoever around predestination in, in human responsibility and accountability. And here's a classic example, again, what, what's the text say, uh, Acts 4 verses 27 and 28, indeed He's going to mention three groups of people, Herod, that's not Herod the Great, but Herod, and Pontius Pilate. Both evil met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So you got four. I'm sorry, you got four groups going here. You got Herod, you got Pilate, you got Gentiles, and the people of Israel in this city. And what is it that this text says they did? They conspired against your holy servant Jesus. In other words, everyone was against him. The reigning tetrarch, you had Pilate, regional governor. You had the Gentiles. You had the people of Israel. All of them conspired against Jesus, whom you anointed. So, would you agree, stop with verse 27, would you agree that what's going on in verse 27 is wicked and wretched and satanic and evil? And the answer is, of course. You've got four different groups here. You've got Herod, Pilate, Gentiles, Jews, all conspiring against Jesus. Who in their right mind wouldn't say, this is evil, this is demonic? That is verse 28, they did what your power and will decided beforehand should happen. How's that fit together? Answer? I don't have a clue. But there you have it. God has a sovereign divine plan that even includes how people respond and yet those people are still fully accountable. In short, Satan failed to see how the cross would lead directly to the resurrection and an explosion of the gospel. Let's be honest, he probably would have never done any of what he did. God used Satan to advance the gospel, very clear. Let me give you one just clear example from history that has struck me over the years. One of the best examples I've seen in history of how God uses Satan to advance the gospel is from the life of Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong was the leader in China, founder of China People's Republic of China. He led China from 1943 to 1976. Becky and I have been in Tiananmen Square, right, where they still keep his corpse. (laughs) Some kind of twisted hope of immortality or something. Weird how they keep these dead guys around, uh, like Lenin in Red Square or uh, Mao in, uh, in Tiananmen Square. It's a sick, twisted form of some kind of immortality. Mao's name stands with the likes of Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot in terms of sheer brutality and carnage. Body count, evil and carnage. And yet, God used Mao to pave the way for the spread of the gospel. Why? Well, Mao did a number of things, but two in particular have struck me that led to an explosion of the gospel in China. Number one, he unleashed a brutal persecution on the Chinese church. Anytime we know from history, usually when persecution is unleashed on the church, it doesn't squash it, it multiplies it. And secondly, give me another one. Mao developed a number of things that helped information and communication spread much more freely. He developed China's infrastructure. And it allowed Christianity to spread a lot more rapidly than it could have 500 years earlier. He developed a massive road system. He made Mandarin the official language. China had been divided by over 300 languages at this point. He advanced literacy training. All of that facilitated the flow of information. And allowed the gospel to flow much more freely. After Mao died in 1976, according to mission specialist Patrick Johnston, he said the growth of the church in China since 1977 has no parallels in human history that we know of. And he said from one million believers in 1949, conservative estimates today put the number of Christians in China, nobody knows for sure, but somewhere between conservatively 70 to 100 million Christians. God uses the devil to advance the gospel, to serve His own divine purposes. Lastly, God uses Satan to purify His people sometimes. We're going to end in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, again some of you know this passage, some of you don't, but it's a very interesting text. How God uses the devil to purify his chosen, his people, at times. Probably more often than we know. Paul tells us he had been given an irritating problem from Satan. The text, both Greek and English, just call it a thorn in the flesh. Obviously, whatever it was... A thorn in your flesh is not a pleasant thing, metaphorically, physically, literally, whatever it was, it was painful and a nuisance to Paul. And it's very clear it had nothing to do with sin in his life. There goes the prosperity gospel right there. This was not some kind of response due to sin in his life. This was God refining His servant. Now, what's interesting, notice Paul attributes this to a messenger from Satan And yet, he goes to God to ask for permission to lift it. That's worth chewing on for a minute. I'm going to read verses 6 to 10. Even if I should boast, choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I should be speaking the truth, but I refrain. So no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassing great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, and that's, that's true for all of us we need that I was given a thorn in my flesh that's just what the Greek says we don't know what it was lots of debate lots of conjecture. everybody agrees though this was painful and it was a nuisance and an irritant and something Paul clearly hated and then he attributes this thorn to a messenger of Satan so the immediate cause he recognizes is demonic to torment me Three times, I pleaded with the devil to take it away. Is that what he says? He didn't didn't plead with the devil. He knows it came from Satan, but who's he go to to get rid of it? God. Why? Because he knows God's the one in charge of the devil. He knows that the devil is God's devil. So he goes to God. That's very interesting. He knows it's from Satan, but he goes to God to get rid of it. But God said, not happening. That's kind of what the Greek says here. Not happening. My grace is sufficient for you. Suck it up. Take it easy. I'm in charge. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, even though we have no evidence that this thorn was ever lifted or taken away, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. There goes the prosperity gospel again. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, kids, the text could not be clearer. (laughs) Could not be clearer. Satan is the immediate tormentor, but it is God that Paul went to to ask for relief. God clearly chose to use Satan to cause Paul to be completely satisfied in God alone. That's what was going on. Let me say it one more time. God clearly chose to use Satan to cause Paul to be completely satisfied in God alone. Now, I want to, before we land this plane, I want to play what if for just a minute, okay? What if Saul, in the Old Testament or Job, or Paul, went to a modern-day TV deliverance ministry? One of these prosperity deliverance ministry things. And what if they've been told, look it, all you got to do is rebuke the devil, command him, and he will flee. He's a defeated foe. Just claim your victory, name it, claim it, and it'll be so. Let that hang there for a minute a while ago read about a prayer meeting held in Washington DC in which a man stood up christian with good intentions and said i command the devil and his demons to leave Washington DC and never return i think we have pretty good empirical evidence that satan and his demons did not leave Washington <laughs> DC <laughs> Deliverance, here's what deliverance theology misses. It misses a key teaching in Scripture. What? Namely, that God has purposes for allowing and ordaining satanic and demonic conflict at times. Purposes he can't see, the devil, and then we can't see. And the point is that the devil is God's devil. He exists He functions, he operates only under the authorization papers and sovereign hand of an all-powerful God who is using him for his ends and purposes. That's something a lot of Christians somehow just miss. Once again, why is this so important that young people get this, that middle-aged people get this, that older people get this? Let me repeat. It's important because, number one, we need to remember that Satan and his angels serve a greater purpose than their own. Number two... That we never forget that God is in sovereign control of history and and He's taking history exactly where He wants it. It's right on schedule. Three, so that we don't despair, get bitter and lose hope in the midst of our regular ongoing struggle with dark demonic forces because that's where a lot of people, God's people end up, just in despair and bitter and disillusioned as they do the daily grind and the battle with demonic forces And so we never forget Satan and his angels will be judged by God and punished for all of eternity. As we end this series, I want to come back to how can we resist the devil? If you know Christ, that's going to be my first thing. But how do you resist the devil? I want to just recap this as we close. Number one, you must be born again and possessed by the Holy Spirit. Interesting, of all the things God could have called His Spirit, the loving Spirit, the gracious Spirit, the helpful Spirit, He's called the Holy Spirit. So step one, the only way to resist Satan is, we, you have to be possessed, I have to be possessed by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the only way we can stand against Satan and his demons is by believing the gospel and being in Christ. The gospel is that Jesus is the long-awaited Savior. That he came to give his life an atonement for his people. The Bible says the moment a person, a sinner, repents and believes, they're not only saved from the coming judgment in hell, they're transformed from the inside out. A spiritual explosion of power takes place in them. And finally, the Holy Spirit lives in them, and they have the ability and the power to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's the first way. second way you stand and resist the devil is adjust your expectations. Too many Christians think we live in a playground and not a battlefield, and you you can tell by looking at their spending habits and how they use their time to play, play, play. We're not on a playground. We're in a battlefield, and while we face a defeated foe at the cross who is wounded and crippled, he is still active, he is still lethal. He is still vicious. He is still cunning. He still directs an army of demons, and he is intent on taking down the people of God. And thirdly, first, we must be born again and possessed by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we must adjust our expectations about the battle we're in. We're not on a playground, we're on a battlefield. And thirdly and lastly, this one's critical. Follow the example of Jesus. When Jesus was tempted and taken mano a mano in the desert by Satan himself, how did he respond and resist Satan? And I'll go back to something I heard at my very first Promise Keepers event I attended way back in the early 90s at Folsom Stadium in Boulder, Colorado. Dr. E.V. Hill, I'll never forget, stood in the pulpit. And asked this very question, how do you resist the devil? How did Jesus resist the devil? And Dr. Hill looked at out 50,000 men and said, he threw scripture at him. Hit him! He had all 50,000 men chanting that, hit him! Hit him! Hit him! Hit him! The only way, friends, young people, to resist the devil lest you be taken in by his schemes, is to do what Jesus did three times as Satan came at him with ridiculous statements, tempting him, taunting him. Jesus, through Scripture, specifically, he went to one of his favorite books, Deuteronomy, and threw three different quotes at him. Satan also came back with Scripture. By the way, Psalm 91, Satan knows his Bible. He misused it, he abused it, but he used Scripture to try to trip up Jesus, which was foolish, but three times Jesus came back at him with Scripture. It is impossible to resist Satan and his schemes if I am not immersed in this book and using it and quoting it back to Satan. I need to be immersed in Scripture. I need to be killing sin in my life and pursuing holiness. I need to make sure I'm keeping short accounts and forgiving others. And I need to keep preaching gospel promises to myself. That is how You take on the devil. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for how much is revealed in this book about Satan and that he is under God's authority. Father, I pray for those here this morning with this many sitting in front of me. Father, I know I have Christians in front of me and non-Christians. I know I have people that are doing well and some that are doing not well. And I assume I have some here today who may be demon-possessed and or under the oppression of demons, or who are genuine believers and you are using demons and Satan in their life to refine or discipline. But whatever the circumstance, may we hear this morning, Satan is under your divine jurisdiction. And only does your divine bidding, everything's on schedule and the devil is God's devil. Help us to remember that as we go forward this week. And we thank you that the scriptures are true and that Christ's blood conquers all. In His name, amen.